Live. Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me for freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. It's New York Sports Talk, long suffering fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a special episode for you this week. We already did a MLB playoff preview with Anthony McCarron earlier this week. You can check that out in the archives and the podcast feed. But we got a special conversation here. He's joined by the director himself of the 30 for 30 on the 1986 Mets once upon a time in Queens, Dick Davis. We're going to dive into some of his process of making the film, some behind-the-scenes stuff. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. We're also going to do our Week 5 NFL picks, and we're joined by our legal analyst and Giant fan, Phil Frietta. Live. Good stuff. The Giants week they picked up a big win against the Saints in overtime. First time they won in New Orleans, at least since 1993. Now they have a big, big game with the Cowboys here in Dallas to try and get themselves in the NFC race because it's right in front of them. Win this game, you can make a push to the division this year because Dallas is the team to beat. If they can go on the road and win this game in Dallas, it'll be a lot of fun. We'll dive into that. Make the picks as well. Make sure you lock in the shelf for six two man drill. Give my thoughts on the Mets managerial situation. That's coming up at the end of the podcast, but. We'll get to the opening tip. We'll get into what happened with the AL wildcard game and what comes next to the Yankees right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here on the opening tip of the second episode of the week, and the Yankee postseason run is over just as quickly as it started. Yankees lose 6-2 Tuesday night to the Boston Red Sox in the wildcard game at Fenway Park. I did a full breakdown on the blog this week, and check that out over there, just in the suffering.wordpress.com. But I'll give you some highlights for the Yankees here, and not many of them. Obviously, this game being in Fenway had a major, major impact. And you saw that the two balls that John Carlos did and hit off the wall at the Green Monster. And both of the man on base, those are four runs for the Yankees if they are in any other ballpark at their Yankee Stadium. Instead, singles, no runs. Garrett Cole didn't have it, had a bad game. If the two-run homer to Xander Bogars in the first inning, most of be noted that he was 1-2 on Rafael, Debert, Rafael Devers in that inning, had a chance to put him away, played a little scared, pitched around him in essence and got burned by Bogarts. As a clean second, then the third, Kyle Schwarber's a leadoff homer. Two men come on, and then that's it. He's done. He's out. Aaron Boone made the right call to get him out, but this is a very disappointing performance from Garrett Cole. The Yankees paid him $324 million for games like this, for games where he's supposed to carry them through the postseason and in these winter elimination games. He spit the bit. He gave them nothing. He put them in a hole, and he's a big, big part of the reason why they lost. A part of the reason, again, the bats did next to nothing. It's not against Giancarlo, who had three hits, hit a homer. The rest of the offense got just three hits. That's not good enough. Not in a playoff game. There were way too many strikeouts. There were way too many fly ball outs. And Nate Evaldi, after a rough start against them last week in Fenway Park, had a much better job here. And it looked for a minute like 
Alex Cora may overreact in this game by pulling of all the other 71 pitches. Cruz through five, sixth inning, gets it out, gives a homer to Rizzo, a soft single to Aaron Judge. He pulls him, and this is the turning point of the game, in my opinion. This is where the Yankees could have gotten right back in this game that blew it. John Carlos' second massive hit off the Green Monster. Aaron Judge is on first. Phil Nevin sends it for some reason. The Red Sox make the perfect throw from Kike Hernandez to the cutoff man, to the plate. He's thrown out the plate for second out. Next out, Joey Gallo pops up the third base, inning over. Red Sox tack on a run the following inning. Two more in the in seventh against Chad Green. Coming in relief with Jonathan Lewis again. That's it. Season's over. And this is a disappointing game for the Yankees, but are you really surprised? It's what they've been doing all year. Inconsistent as hell. Garrett Cole's been up and down. Give you a down today. The offense didn't do much. And surprise, surprise, the Yankees are home. And this is a team that's predicted to go to the World Series before the season. A lot of Yankee Dodgers predictions. Now those will not come true. I think the Yankees have to look long and hard in the mirror and figure out what's going on here at this team and what we have to do to fix it. Because remember, 2017 is five years ago now. It's when they burst on the scene, took the Astros to Game 7, had this young core, and oh my gosh, the window's wide open. They can win multiple championships. They still have not even made the World Series in five years, let alone won one. Yes, they made the playoffs every year, but they've gone to the ALCS twice, lost to the Astros all the times. They lost to the Red Sox in the American League Division Series in 2018, the great Red Sox team. They lost to the Rays in the ALDS last year, and now they lost in the wild card. So this is clearly trending in the wrong direction. A couple of things to consider here. Is it time to move off Marion Boone? They're against four and against it. I think for me, it depends on what you're doing with the roster. If you're keeping the ro- a lot of the roster intact, which I don't think they should, but they might, I let Aaron Boone go, bring a different manager in here, different coaching staff, and then get more out of it. I think if you are shaking up the roster, I think you can do. Because look at that 2017 core. Apart from Aaron Judge, who has actually progressed to become a star? Gary Sanchez is inconsistent as usual. Clint Frazier has never got stayed healthy. Same for Miguel Andujar. All those guys. None of them have actually done a thing to warrant long-term commitments to them. Glaber Torres as well, and that might be self-inflicted wound for the Yankees because obviously they chose to move him from second base to shortstop. His defense was bad there. It sort of impacted his offense. I need to give him one more go, put him in second base next year, see what happens. I think for the Yankees, you have to look at two things. Number one, offensively, you got to shake up this group somehow. I keep Anthony Rizzo just because I think he's a much better fit for diversifying their lineup. Otherwise, their lineup is too much of the same. All pop, all nothing sluggers who don't do a ton. Rizzo works the count. He has patience. He gets on base. Stuff like that. Plays good defense. I think it's a big upgrade for Luke Voy at first base. I think the Yankees should consider bringing him back. I think you need to upgrade center field too. I know they have Aaron Hicks' contract, but Aaron Hicks never stay on the field. Might be a glorified fourth outfield for you at this point. I find the Yankees to go after Starling Marte because you add some speed to the outfield, you add some defense, and you add some guy who can hit for average. Give you some different dimensions to this offense that they don't really have. Pitching-wise, I think you need more. Simply put, Garrett Cole, you have Garrett Cole here. You hope he's better next year. But again, look at the rotation beyond him. Jordan Montgomery, Nestor Cortez, Jason Tyone, Corey Kluber. A lot of injuries in there. Luis Severino's in the mix, but can you ever count him staying healthy? Domingo Herman, same thing. And these kids that you're talking about developing. None of them have really gotten here. 
we've heard all about how the Yankees, all these young pitchers on the way. There's Michael King, Clark Schmidt, Davey Garcia, Luis Heel, Albert Abreu, all these guys. Where are they? It's a little concerning that none of them have been able to claim a rotation spot in the last couple of years. That's a bit problematic. I think you need more fortified starting pitching because, again, the Yankees had to use so much bullpen this year. You saw some of these guys wear down during the stretch. And a lot of self-inflicted losses, a lot of poor performances. And you see the Yankees here. You're getting monster years out of John Carlos Stanton and Garrett, and Garrett Cole and Aaron Judge. And you're thinking, boy, this team won 100 games. They won 91. They got swept by the Tigers. They got bombed out of the stadium by the Indians in two games in late September. They dropped two out of three of the Mets. There are plenty of opportunities, all those Oriole losses, for them to have hosted this game, potentially moved on, but they didn't have it. This group is going in the wrong direction. I think to take a lot of soul searching and figure out what do we have to do to get through that glass ceiling here and get back to the World Series and actually win it. I don't think running it back is an option anymore. you got to do different things. you got to make this work better. Time will tell happens with them. That's going to be an interesting offseason conversation with them. But we're going to go to our interview with Nick Davis, the director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, right after this. In the 70s, being a Mets fan was not the happiest of times. It was kind of like, who are the Mets? Managers came and went, players came and went, but a core was being built. People talk about 86, but it was like a trilogy, man. 84, 85, and 86. We're better. Now we're going to dominate. The fan base and the city had been whipped up into a frenzy. You didn't know all this weird stuff was bubbling underneath. Mets developed a bullying, attention-grabbing reputation. The alcohol was flowing. Let's put it this way, we put the S in speed. Why should I worry about it? These guys are partying and they're winning also. That seemed like the win-win to me. If you were from Queens, you were on top of the world. Their behavior was disgusting, but winning cures a lot of sins. They'd won 108 games. What can go wrong? Once Upon a Time in Queens, September 14th and 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. All right, I am back here on the podcast talking 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Very happy today to be joined by the director of the four-part documentary, Nick Davis, is on the line. Nick, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, I thank you for coming on because I got to say, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the co-editor of my website, John Coppinger. You were talking about it. We tagged you on Twitter and you just had some fun talking to you about it and said and this sort of happened now organically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been really fun. You know, uh, you know, you make these things and you spend a long time just with your own people and your own thoughts and team and stuff. So it's been really fun to get out there with it and talk to people and see what they're enjoying or not enjoying or missing and uh you know try and uh, answer questions about why things ended up the way they did yeah and obviously i want to start out here because obviously you're a big met fan you were around for that 86 team. what was your experience like with that team obviously that was before i was born so i missed out on all that that was the greatest fan experience <laughs> that i will ever have in my life um i was uh i was 12 in 1977 um, so, you know, you can do the math. And, and from that low moment of June 15th, 1977, you just felt like I, this is it. I mean, Seaver's gone. The franchise is in the toilet. As it happens, the city is in the toilet as well. Um, and I don't know how we're ever going to get back from this. And so to watch over the years as that team was put together, you know, piece by piece, it was just 
tremendously exciting. And, and by 84, uh, it was, you know, when it was really first sort of believed, um, it was just tremendously exciting. And, and I remember being in a game in August of 85, uh, you know, and it, Gooden was pitching against the Expos and he was mowing them down and the place, Shea Stadium was rocking and I had never experienced anything like this. And as a Met fan, uh, you know, you, well, as any fan, you wait for that team, that historically great team. Uh, in, in my case, I'd always read The Boys of Summer and thought, what, what would it be like to have been a fan of those great Brooklyn Dodger teams? And now all of a sudden it was happening. And I remember saying to myself in the stadium, remember this, remember this, it's not going to happen again. And, um, you know, in fact, it, 84, 85, and then 86, the, the crowning moment, it was, it was just unbelievably exciting. And so to be able to go back and tell that story was uh, just an absolute thrill. Yeah, for sure. And I always was curious about the how this project got started, because I assume last year when it got announced in May of 2020, we assumed, oh, it's just a reaction to the last dance. But I understand you've been working on this long before. So how'd you get involved with this project? So I, um, I first, look, I've loved this team ever since it existed. And, and uh, you know, I was even in Hollywood in the 90s pitching a fictionalized version of the Goodfellas of baseball. Um, which was to be based on the 86 Mets. That never got off the ground. And then in about 2010, um, after 30 for 30 got going, I read about some long form documentary that was gonna do the 86 Mets story. And I was so angry. And I just felt like, why did I not make this happen? Um, and then I never heard anything about it. And in 2015, I started working on, my last film was a PBS uh, American Masters about Ted Williams. And it was the first time, well, first time in about 20 years I'd worked on anything having to do with baseball, but I loved it. I loved Ted Williams, um, or I came to love Ted Williams. And, um, and the whole time I was working on that, I was asking Major League Baseball, with whom I was partnering on that film, why has, what happened in that 86 Mets project? Why hasn't it been done in the era of long form documentaries? And I was thinking more of the OJ Simpson, you know, OJ Made in America, the Ezra Edelman film, which is terrific. Like, why not do something that that does for that team, you know, gives it the time and space. It's an epic story of a team and a time and a place. Um, what happened to that? And, you know, I don't know what happened to that particular project, but I was able to get Major League Baseball to say, all right, let's do this Ted Williams thing, then we'll talk about that. So in 2018, when the Williams film was finished, I got serious with Major League Baseball, had preliminary meetings with various networks who told me, well, in order to do it, here's what you would need to do. They gave me a long laundry list of things I needed to do, including, most crucially, they would say things like, you know, no offense, Nick, but you need an 800-pound gorilla. Um, and in my case, the 800-pound gorilla was Jimmy Kimmel, who through a crazy set of circumstances, we were able to bring on board as an executive producer, um, so that by the time we were pitching networks in the fall of 2019, um, we were, we had it all. We had the Mets participation, we had Major League Baseball, we had a really good written treatment, a pitch, and, um, and Jimmy Kimmel uh, as the executive producer. So, um, so that's sort of the genesis of the project. Yeah, I want to ask about the Mets involved specifically because I know this is a big part of their history. So what was the meeting like with the Mets when you went to them and said, hey, we want to do this big long form story about your 86 championship team? Were they on board right away? Did they have hesitations? What was the experience with the Mets like? 
I, I think I got really lucky. I think there had been hesitations in the past. I think they're all the, the you know, scandals and, and you know, rapscallion-ish or nefarious, depending on how you feel about it, <laughs> behavior uh, was something the Mets didn't really want to touch um, for a long, long time. But they also recognized it's really important to the fan base and that story and that team. And if it was going to be done, they they didn't want to try and whitewash it because we all knew the stories. So um, for whatever reason, and maybe it was because by the time I got there in the fall of 2019 or 2018, when I met with the Mets, um, the ownership change was brewing. I don't know, but there was uh, there was nothing but OK, I, this is the right team to do this. Uh, let, let's do it. And with their participation, all it meant was they would say, you know, Jay Horowitz would, would say, would call a player and say, take this guy's phone call. Um, and, 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 but that's huge. You know, if Jay Horowitz is telling, you know, Daryl Strawberry or Keith or whoever, you know, pick up this guy's phone call, that means that, that the team wanted it to happen. Um, but, uh, I was really lucky and the timing worked out in so many wonderful ways. Yeah, for sure. I remember reading when this came out, you said on Twitter too, when you were live tweeting during the documentary, that the original vision of this story was you want to do a seven part series and it got cut to four. So like, was there any big stuff like the original vision? You said originally you wanted to do a whole episode on the 87 season, sort of the downfall of that team. So like any other big elements got cut from the six hour plus version? Well, so it, there's two different things. First, I went to Major League Baseball and I said, let's do this in seven hours. And within about a day, they said, mm, the market won't bear seven hours. And, and so it was a market decision as much as anything else. Um, but I think it was wise. I, I think seven probably would have been too much. Um, then when I handed in the initial rough cut for the four hour version, which it's four commercial hours. So it's actually only three hours and 20 minutes or 21 minutes. They gave us an extra minute in episode four. Um, that was six hours and 25 minutes. And so much had to be cut, uh, at that point to, to get it down to size. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there was anything crucial. There were just lots of terrific stories and, Lenny Dykstra telling a great story about going hunting with Kevin McReynolds, you know, and, uh, you know, Ray Knight telling a fantastic story about stopping Daryl Strawberry and Gary Carter from having a fight on a team bus, you know, all, all kinds of just wonderful stories, but to service the complete story, the single story, um, nothing essential was, was lost. Um, as a Met fan, uh, and a Met fan with a particular bent, I do wish I'd been able to get deeper into the ownership story because the ownership story during the summer of 1986 was fascinating. Um, but ultimately, we, you know, I, I think I felt like it's distracting and it's it's confusing what happened between Wilpon and Doubleday that summer and takes a lot of real estate that is probably, you know, better used for for stories of the team itself. Yeah, it makes sense. And obviously, this is a story everybody knows very well. It's been told a lot of different ways. A lot of different times, it's like an hour special, books, so on. Like, how did you want to set out and say, how to make my version different from what's already out there? What was like, your idea to try and separate yourself? I, I never thought that way. I, I just felt like, you know what? It's never been done as a four-hour documentary. Yes, Perlman's book is fantastic. And, and Daryl and Doc is a terrific documentary about the two of them and where they are now. 
But nobody had ever said, we're going to do the epic tale of New York City and how it fused and fell in love with this particular team in that time. And those players who embodied the city in a way that very few sports teams ever embodied their, their, uh, their city. And so I never was too concerned about, well, and, and I knew that the chatter was, oh, we've heard this before. Well, no, you haven't. I mean, or, or maybe you've heard it or you've read it, but you haven't felt it in a documentary. You haven't, you haven't lived it the way only a documentary film can. You may have read the books, you may have read the articles, but you haven't done this particular story this particular way. And um, so I wasn't overly concerned about all that, although I did know that, well, that's what people are gonna say when it comes out, like, oh no, not this again. Um, and even the Mets, some of them had the, the feeling of like, why are we doing this again? But then I think very quickly, once we began, they all realized, oh, wait a minute, this actually hasn't been done before. Um, no one has done a, a deep dive into this team in this way for this form, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I also know as you, I'm glad you brought the city of New York itself, because I know that was the big thing that stuck out to me, was that you made an effort, I feel like, to make the city of New York itself like a character in the film, whether it was through, like, stories of the team going around the city, stuff going on in the city in the late 70s, early 80s, I think... That definitely felt like added to the whole aspect of this film, made it feel like a more complete product, having New York itself be a character in it. Well, you couldn't be here then and not get that feeling. You know, it was not like a grafted on idea. It was, and it came also from the players themselves. They were all talking about how it was such an exciting time to be in New York and, and that they would go out and would be treated in <laughs> this incredible way. And, um, and, 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 and the interviewees were all saying like the city and the team blended and they became one in a really, um, you know, it, it doesn't happen often. Um, and so uh, it, was, it was sort of natural that the city and the become, as you say, like almost like a character. It was so, it was so present. You know, it's present in all the shots. It's the present in, you know, one of my favorite shots in the film is that incredible documentary shot of, of uh, the tracking shot of Mookie Wilson leaving the field and uh, after the ground ball that went through the first baseman's legs and he's leaving the field and, and the cameraman is just tracking behind him and he's going into the dugout and the fans are going crazy and the policemen are there clapping him on the back and like that feeling of like being so embraced and embedded in the city was just it was sort of everywhere we looked. Um, we interviewed Kurt Anderson, who doesn't know anything about baseball. I mean, he freely admitted when I first contacted him, he said, I, I, I can talk about the 80s, but I, I, in New York City, I can't talk about the Mets. I, I was hardly paying attention. I was putting on a magazine. And I said, well, that's fine. Maybe we won't use it. And everything he said about the city was true of the Mets. So it was, it was just a natural thing as we were making the film that it, it, it sort of told us you know, when you're making a film, it can tell you what it is. And, and the film told us what it was. Yeah, for sure. And I mentioned, you mentioned that Mookie Wilson, like tracking shot where the cameraman follows into the dugout. Like, obviously, that's what I never seen before. I'm sure you had a lot of interesting sources of footage that didn't really get circulated widely publicly. I know you mentioned on Twitter that the 8016 had a documentary crew maker, like documentary crew following them around. And I find it crazy. That, like they had all that and that never really got out in some big project before this. 
Yeah, I mean, lots of it, or not lots of it, but they did use, a, you know, some of it in the 86 Mets uh, Year in Review, which is this terrific film that every, you know, Met fan got that uh, winter for, for Christmas, uh, a year to remember. But, you know, that was, they only had an hour and they were telling the, the whole season's story. Um, they didn't go into the city. Um, and and they they didn't use as much of it as as we were able to because we had more we had more time yeah that's true and i also loved like getting behind the scenes inside some of like the ridiculous rap videos they were doing as a team whether it was the get mesmerized or let's go mets go like it definitely was fun seeing behind the scenes some of that part of me just wishes you could have found joe piscopo get his commentary getting a tackle in the dugout but that would be funny <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think if we'd had a larger budget and maybe the six hour or seven hour version, we would have gone after Joe Piscopo. Yeah. And in terms of the interviews, I know the one interview you mentioned that was actually like alluded to in the documents you tried to get but couldn't get was George Foster. You said a little bit on Twitter about why that didn't happen. Can you talk a little bit about the George Foster experience? I was like trying to get him for the interview. Yeah, so I mean, the, the process was with most of these guys, um, Jay Horowitz would make the initial contact and um, and then he would say, you know, okay, you know, here's the number, call him. Uh, and in George Foster's case, he said, George Foster doesn't want to participate. And I said, well, can I just talk to him? And Jay said, sure. So, well, he said, check with George. George. So I had a conversation with George Foster and this was, I think, pre-pandemic. And it was great. It was hilarious. He's a very fun and smart man. And I was able to, I thought, convince him, look, you were there. You were a part of the story. It didn't end well. It didn't begin particularly well, but you were an important cog in that, in that machine. You were the first great acquisition of the Frank Cash in era. It was like a, you know, a shot across the bow of the rest of baseball. Hey, the Mets mean business now. We're getting a, a former MVP. And we just want to hear your thoughts. And he said, okay, you know, and he would do it. And then the pandemic hit and it knocked us out for a couple of months. And we sort of had to gather our, you know, forces to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? And we figured out how we were going to do it, film the interviews remotely. Um, so I called George back or texted him and said, hey, we want to figure this out. Here's how we're doing it. We're going to hire a local crew in Cincinnati and come to you. And uh, and at that point, he said, uh, I'm going to politely decline. So he may have had second thoughts anyway, but I, I, it was another thing that, you know, had me upset with the pandemic. On the other hand, I do think that we tell his story and that part of the story as well as it can be told. And, and you know, some guys are, are not great advocates for themselves. So maybe it's even better that he didn't participate. Um, and um, I, I feel like the, you know, I'm not, I'm not sorry for the film's sake that we didn't get him. I'm sorry for my sake that we didn't get him. Yeah, I also thought it was great. You mentioned that he's, you tell his story, you know, he's not there. The one thing I didn't know is that he was there in game six of the A6 World Series, and my partner, John Coppinger, made out. It's like that he was there for the NBC. And so they're, they're coming back. They're going to win this game. That was, I thought it was a fascinating uh, piece of uh, interview you got from, I think it was Anne Ligori said that, or? Yeah, Anne Ligori said that. And that was, a, that was an amazing bit of information. And when we found that out um, from, in a pre-interview with Anne Ligori, we said, we have to talk to you because that, it's, what was he doing there? She didn't know why he was there. I would have loved to have asked him, like, what were you doing? And it was probably some, you know, corporate engagement or something. But um, but the fact that he's the one in the film who says, 
you can't count this team out. And even when he's being released, he says he's sad because he won't be with this team when they win the World Series. They all had that mindset that they were going to win no matter what. It's so rare. You, you don't see a team that has that like, I mean, obviously all teams, you know, expect to win, but, but the, the real almost knowledge that they were going to win um, and then the fact that they very nearly didn't, you know, it, it just incredible, incredible. Yeah, for sure. And obviously you couldn't get him, but you'd tell the story. So anybody else that you felt like you wanted from that team, you couldn't get that like you tried to reach out to, you didn't find. Not really. I mean, there was a couple other guys we just didn't connect with in time or a couple other, one other player said no. And it was early in the process. And my sense was, oh, he doesn't understand what we're doing. He thinks it's just going to be another rehash of the negativity and sort of all about Daryl and Doc. And, um, and if, uh, but, but really, no, I, I, I felt like we got, a, you know, we got most of the major players and, and a representative sampling of, of those who were not as important. We had these sort of two outsidery figures on the team, one who was traded before 86, Billy Bean, and one who was traded in the middle of the year, Ed Lynch. And they were kind of our kind of like, you know, almost like a fish out of water. Like, uh, you know, if things had been different, like that's me, if I had been a baseball player, Ed Lynch, you know, I, I can understand that guy. He's like normal and human. And, and he can tell the story of these crazy outrageous athletes. Uh, and same, same with Billy Bean. Um, so I feel like we, we covered the waterfront pretty, pretty well. Yeah, and I also saw, I was curious, like, I see Terry Pendleton was, Pendleton was in there, and we know the role he plays in 87, basically ending that team season. Like, he was really the most notable, like, opposing player in the dock. We had no ties to the Mets itself. Did you consider more guys like him, or was he sort of like, okay, he's our guy for that role in the, in the film? Yeah, he, he, again, there were a few other players we approached, and, and I, you know, I'm not making excuses. I'm very proud of the film and, and winding up with the 44 interviewees that we did have was was great. We would have had more if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Um, we, you know, we actually the other guy who said no was Mike Scott would have been fun to talk to him. But again, I think the film works great for his not being in there. And to hear the great Jeff Perlman story about, you know, well, one of these days I will write my book and I'll tell the story, the truth about scuffing. Oh, great. When are you going to write your book? Never. You know? <laughs> so I feel like that, you know, that's all you really need to hear from Mike Scott. Um, but it would have been it would have been fun to, to talk to him anyway. Yeah, uh, but he said no. Um, yeah, yeah. I did love the part though when you told Mike Scott's story when you had I forget which player it was was showed you the scuff basil. So I got about another fifteen of these in my basement. So I thought that was a fun way to show. Yeah, he's still scuffing the balls. Yeah, yeah. No, Ed Hearn kept kept all these baseballs for for thirty five years. Ed Hearn kept these scuffed baseballs. It's it's you know it's hilarious and it's it's lore and it's like mismaking you know and that's what makes this team. Uh, so fun is like they they were so larger than life and you know whatever team wins the world series this year i'm sure it's going to be a great team and and somebody could do a documentary about them but they they don't you know they're not like these mythic figures almost the way the 86 mets were yeah and i want to talk about like a couple of the civic interviews you got and i'll start with Letty dietrich because obviously like We've heard all the stories about Lenny's issues off the field, all the crazy stuff he did on the field. But I have to say, like, the experience of interviewing him, I mean, he comes off as one of the most interesting people in this film because, like, as my partner said on the site, like, 
he has to cut off like your crazy old uncle, like where he's just saying all these like wacky stories. So what was it like talking to Lenny for this project? Uh, it was great. And it, that was one of the real highlights, I have to say, it was interviewing Lenny. He, it was the first of the, I think it was the first of the remote interviews that we did. Um, so I was here in New York in my office and he was in LA. We rented a, a place to, to film him in um, and had a you know producer on set, an LA-based producer, LA-based cameraman, uh, everyone masked and, you know, they, we, you know, the, the Lenny Wrangler got him to the set on time. Uh, and he's being interviewed, you know, I'm conducting the interview from my office over zoom. They placed the laptop right next to the camera. So he's looking just off camera as he would, as if I were in the room. And it was, you know, four hours of just amazing, you know, stories and profanity and, hilarious stuff, but also I found very moving at times, very uh, kind of honest. Um, you know, he's obviously had a challenging, difficult life and, you know, he doesn't make excuses for it, but he's he's out there. And, you know, a number of people when I was finished, they were like, well, was he crazy? And I was like, no, I don't think he's crazy. I think he's crazy like a fox. I think he he knows what he's giving out. He knows that he's to some extent playing the role of nails and and that we expect a certain kind of nuttiness from him and and unfilteredness. Um, but he's also honest and talks about like, you know, at the end of the film, like the thing about, you know, his life now and days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, but, but it's okay because I want a World Series in New York City. Where do you go from there? So I, could, I, I was very moved by that in the interview room or in the interview Zoom. And um, and I was really happy to put it in the film. Yeah, the other interview I want to get to also is Keith Hernandez. Obviously, I think he comes off as sort of like the main character of the 86 Mets here, where he was obviously their captain, the leader of the team. And I think the most fascinating thing about his interview is obviously besides the presence of Haji, which is always great, but the whole movies, yeah. like what part of the point did, did Keith volunteer show you the whole movie? Did you know about these things? What happened with the whole movies? No, I, I, I can't remember. Maybe he wrote about it in his book. Um, he, he must have written about the home movies in his book. And I asked him about it and he said, yeah, sure. I'm happy to uh, give them to you and put them on DVD and give them back to me. Um, and um, yeah, nobody had ever seen them before. And they're they're incredible that, you know, the father was so involved in Keith's baseball career that he had the mom take, you know, eight millimeter film, which it's not like, you know, it's on your phone, like you have to go buy an eight millimeter camera. And, you know, it's complicated if you're not, a, you know, a, 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 someone who's good at gadgets. And, um, and so it was just kind of amazing. And then and at key moments in his life, Keith's father would say, look at this, I want to show you this. And he would say, look, there you were, you were 11 years old, and, and I knew you had it. And this is why I was so hard on you, because I knew you had a chance to be something special, and I wasn't going to let you blow it. And it's just, I, that's very intense. And and uh, I was thrilled and so delighted and, and really, I was just amazed that Keith was so willing to talk about uh, what he went through in, in his childhood with his dad. And, and same thing with all the guys. I mean, it, it, certainly Doc and Daryl, most particularly, that they talked about their childhood so openly uh, was really a gift uh, to the film. Yeah, for sure. And my last question here is just sort of, obviously, we got a lot of stories we never heard before. I know I can think of a bunch on the top of my head, whether it was Bob O'Hee's secret injection, like shot before he gets starts in the NLCS, Gary Carter fighting uh, Lenny Dice in the hotel, 
them tra- ordering a hooker for Jay Horowitz in Montreal, them wrecking the plane. Like, like what story when you found out and you said, oh my God, this is, this is gold. I have to get this in here. What was like that one story that jumped out to you right away? Well, I tell you, the mule kicking story I, I loved so much. Yeah. And the, the hotel, and Dykstra said it was in Atlanta, uh, where he was mule kicking Gary Carter's door, uh, trying to get him to come out at three o'clock in the morning. And then, and then Carter, you know, I mean, it was, you know, obviously a great tragedy that, that Carter, and, and ironic that Carter would be the one to go first, you know, and that his voice, I mean, we have his voice and we have his widow, Sandy Carter, who was terrific in the film and terrific and, and, and open with us. But, um, but, you know, he's portrayed so often as just like a big goofy guy. But that story is so great because it shows how tough he was, too. And he, he you didn't mess with Gary Carter and, you know, Lenny Dykstra, ha ha ha. It's all very funny and cute. But, you know, gosh darn it, let me get my sleep and don't you ever do this again. Um, and um, so I, I think that when when Lenny told that story, I, I was like, well, this is going right in. Um, and I was very happy about that. You know, and I should say that, you know, the six and a half hour version, which I you know, I thought we were done. I knew we weren't done, but I, 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 I loved every minute of it. Um, one of the great things is we do have this book and the book is an oral history and is essentially transcripts from the interviews that we did. Uh, and the book is, you know, now available at bookstores and everything. And it contains a lot of the stories that we didn't have time for. So everything that was in that six and a half hour rough cut pretty much is in the book and, and other stories as well. So a lot of the things that um, just in talking to you, I've thought of a couple of other things. I was like, ah, I wish we'd had time for, you know, the fact that Terry Pendleton's home run uh, in 87, which knocked the Mets essentially out of contention and ruined the chance of them repeating as champions. His home run sailed over the center field wall and and dented Ron Darling's Mercedes you know, and we didn't have time for that in the film, but uh, that was just such a great detail. Uh, and, and that's in the book. And, you know, that's what I, I, I'm very happy to like, that we have the book to sort of catch all the stuff that we didn't have time for in the film. Yeah, for sure. I definitely plan on getting that book. Cause I would definitely want to see all those stories that did not make the cut. I'm fascinated by that. And are any of the products you're working on right now, you want to like, let the audience know, like what, like some stuff to look for in the future from you. Well, uh, the craziest coincidence in my life is that I have been working on a book uh, for the last, uh, another book, uh, for the last 18 or 19 years about my family. Um, my grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, who people may know because he wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And uh, my great uncle was Joe Mankiewicz, who wrote and directed, among other movies, All About Eve and Cleopatra and a bunch of other things. And so I, I wrote a book about them that came out the same day that the documentary aired, just a total coincidence. And that book is called uh, Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait. So that's that's the other thing that I have out now. Uh, and then I've got other films that are coming, but too early to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Let me keep an eye on the future. If you want to follow you on Twitter, it's at Nick Davis Prods, correct? I think so. I'm not great on the Twitter. I'm trying. <laughs> But yes, I think it's Nick Davis Prods. Yeah, for sure. So ch- follow Nick there. Be sure to check out his books if you enjoyed this interview. Nick, thanks for all the time. Today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. Take care. Show me the money. Money! <laughs> 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 
All right, show me the money. NFL picks time for week number five. Join me today for the first time on video, our legal correspondent, big-time Giant fan, Phil Frey is here. Phil, how are you? Um, not great uh, because I'm a big-time Yankee fan also. Uh, so I- I've been a lot better, but, uh, but thanks for having me on. Not a problem. I mean, we'll start with your Yankees. Talk about the top of the show here. My issues with that game, the wild card game, the season as a whole, and I know you have some thoughts. So I'll let you take the, give you the floor here. So, what's your big issue here at the Yankees, besides the manager? Yeah. So, uh, I apologize. I'm going to rant here, but my my big issue with the Yankees is what what I call just arrogance. It's baseless arrogance from the organization. It starts at the top and goes all the way down. And nothing is exemplified more than Aaron Boone saying that the rest of the league has caught up to us. So what the hell does that mean? This is a team, Mike, that's won the division once in 10 years. They won one division title in 10 years. They won a World Series since 2009. They lose to the Rays every single time they play them. They lose to the Red Sox every time they play them in a big game. They lose to Houston every time they play them in a big game. So I don't understand what Aaron Boone is talking about, but that is what the organization thinks. Uh, I heard on JJ's podcast on the Ringer Network today an analogy that I thought was perfectly right. And uh, it's a historical one for the history buffs, but the Yankees are like Macedonia after Alexander the Great. Nobody cares about Macedonia after Alexander the Great. No one even knows what Macedonia is. And that's what the Yankees are like. They they live in the past. I understand they have 27 championships, but they have won diddly squat in the past 10 years, and especially this group of players. This group of players has done nothing. So if we go through a history of recent Yankee history, they had the 09 bunch. Those guys, they won the title in 2010. They just came up a little short. 11, they regressed. 12 was just the wheels fell off. They got old. Jeter broke his ankle in that playoff game. The team disbanded in 13. They were horrible. Okay. 13 to 16, they tried to rebuild with the Beltron and Tanaka and Jacoby Ellsbury. It didn't work. They, uh, they were a mediocre team. And then came 17. And in 17, the, you know, the Bamey Bombers showed up. We had Judge and Stanton and later Andujar and Torres and so on and so forth. And uh, Gary Sanchez, and and this this was the the year. And the Yankees, you know, they had that miracle run in 17. They almost made the World Series. And we expected by now they would have built on that. But these, these guys have regressed, Mike. They've regressed. Who is better? Who is better than he was in 2017 on this team? Judge? That's it. That's it. Andujar stinks. Torres stinks. Sanchez stinks. Severino's nowhere to be found. Chad Green stinks now. And so on and so forth. Clint Frazier can't even play. So it's it's time for the organization to say, this group failed. We need to reset, hit the reset button, and improve the team dramatically. Dramatically, because uh, I'll, I'll end my rant here, Mike. Every year the Yankees lose in the playoffs, they tell you the playoffs are a crapshoot. And they're right, the playoffs are a crapshoot. But now they have a problem because the Yankees have been a mediocre regular season team now for a year and a half. 
barely making the playoffs, you can't tell me the playoffs are a crapshoot. You didn't even deserve to be there. You're the fourth best team in your own division. You beat out Toronto by a game. And, and Mike, I don't think anybody could disagree with me that if that season went on one more week, Toronto was going to pass them. Oh, 100%. And I think the thing also that frustrates me if I was a Yankee fan is just like the sense I've been getting. And from what I was listening to today, we haven't heard from the Yankees today. We're recording on Wednesday night. And who knows, the time this gets in your ears Thursday, we might have changed here. But from all of the cases, it sounds like Aaron Boone will be coming back. So they've given no hint that they're going to let him go, which to me makes no sense because I get, yes, he did a good job at the end there, sort of stabilizing the ship there. But a lot of questionable moves. This team has not gotten any better here. If you're going to bring everybody back, bring the gang back together one more time. I don't know how you can do that with the same manager and hope for different results. It's really the definition of insanity. If Aaron Boone, I didn't talk about Aaron Boone in our opening because you said besides the manager. But if you want to talk about the manager, Aaron Boone should have been fired last night. They should have let him go last night. There is no reason for Aaron Boone to get his job again. The team has regressed under his leadership. He makes questionable in-game decisions, but most importantly of all, because I understand that analytics departments are really driving the manager's decisions now. I get that. But most importantly, Boone just exemplifies the culture of accepting of losing. The Yankees are embarrassed by the Rays and the Red Sox every, and the Blue Jays for that matter, every single time. And they don't care. They act like it, the regular season is meaningless. We'll be there in the playoffs and we'll show up. It's not true, Mike. It's just not true. And Aaron Boone is the guy who exemplifies that. I want a manager like Alex Cora. I want a guy like that to manage the Yankees with that fire that we're going to go out there and we're going to beat the Rays. We're going to, I don't think I'm allowed to say this on your podcast. We're going to kick their butt. We are going to kick the Rays' butt. You know what? The Yankees should bully the Rays. They've got a payroll 10 times that of the Rays. Bully them. But they don't. Same thing of the Red Sox, too. By, by the way, Mike, if anybody thinks that wants to tell you about the rivalry in 1918, the rivalry has been completely flipped on its head now. The, the Red Sox are the, the dominant team in the rivalry. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're definitely the dominant team now. It's just thing you sit there, you watch this, and it's just, I'm going to sort of wrap it here because I don't want to go on forever and ever and ever because we've got NFL picks to do here, but I just think you're right that there's sort of an attitude of entitlement and arrogance of this team and this front office where they're like, we're the Yankees. People are going to be go- come to us. They're going to win and we're going to do what we want. And the sport's evolving around them and they're sort of standing in place. Yeah, and, and then the last thing I'll say before we move on to football is, so how do you improve it? Well, the first thing you do is you fire the manager, but the second thing you do is you change the offensive philosophy. This team does not score runs. They, they, they don't even score runs anymore. I want... I want Sanchez gone. I want Gardner gone. I want Urshela gone. I want Andujar gone. Frazier gone. I want those guys replaced by players who can play defense and are athletes. And and there's no reason why the Yankees can't bring that in. And by the way, while we're at it, Joey Gallo, trade him. Just get rid of him. He He is the epitome of what's wrong with the Yankees. You do not need another three true outcomes guy in that lineup. They have enough of them. Get rid of Joey Gallo. Yeah, well, I feel like they're going to stick, keep around, keep him around because Brian Cashman made that trade. But since we're on the baseball topic here, they're, they're going to roll it back next year. They're going to come in fourth place, and then maybe they'll change. Yeah. So also, we're going to since we're on the baseball topic, here, we're going to revisit. We do the over unders in the preseason every year, and this year was pretty close. 
Put the graphic up on the screen here for people watching the video version. It's going to be in the post-production, Phil. So you're not, you can't see it live. It'll be on the YouTube version. But we end up tying 4-2 this year. It was pretty crazy because I thought I was dead to rights for about a, for about five months. And all of a sudden, I got red hot in the last month. But you got the, the Cardinals with their yeah. 17 or whatever it was game-winning yeah. streak. Yep. The Lily carried me over the line. So to reset here, Phil's picks for this year. You had the White Sox over 90.5. He won that. The Indians under 81 and a half. He won that. He lost on my team over 91. I'm sorry, Phil. That was bad. Uh, I'm, I'm never touching the Mets again. <laughs> yeah. I'm never touching the Mets again. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I jinxed them, but I want no part of the Mets. Yeah. Yeah. The Red Sox under 79 and a half. That was a loss. We understand Alex Cora coming back and having an impact like that. I, I Look, a year ago, I would have told you, I don't care who the manager is. You can go get a and get a kid off the street to be the manager. Alex Cora has changed my opinion. Uh, he he makes a difference. He makes a tremendous difference. And uh, that's why I was saying earlier, I want the Yankees to bring in a guy like that. Yeah, you had those those two those are two laws. You had the Astros always a seven and a half as a win. And you went against the trends here on that one. This is from proof you correct for you. The Padres under 94 and a half, probably your best call of the year. The Padres, there was too much hype. Now, look, I'll admit, I didn't see the San Francisco Giants winning 107 games. But what I did see that they were in a division with the Dodgers and that in 94 is a big number. Uh, I thought they were going to win like closer to 90. Uh, they, they, I didn't expect them to have as bad a year as they did, but I, I did think 94 was too high. Yeah. And Jace Tingler got fired today as we were rec- prior to us recording. So he, pay, he did pay the price for that one. Yeah. Well, uh, somebody should pay the price when teams underperform. Yeah. My picks. I had the Rockies under six three and a half. That was a big loss. I was shocked that they win as many games as they did. The home field at Coors is just such a big deal for them. Yeah, the, the I'm especially in that division uh, yeah. with two hundred six plus win teams in there. Uh, that, that's really surprising. So I had them. I had the Royals over seven three and a half. That was the one that came down to the wire. They won it in the last couple days, so I got that one right. The Cardinals we talked about already over eighty six. Phillies under 81 and a half. I lost that barely. They have 82 wins. I had the Blue Jays over 86. They got hot at the end to win it. And Baltimore under 63 and a half was a lock. I had that one basically from June on. Yeah. Yeah. Blue Jays was a good one though. Uh, the, the Blue Jays are a scary, scary bunch. Yeah, they are a scary bunch. And let's get to the football now here. So we're going to leave that alone. We'll call it a tie. We'll see next year who can get the upper hand, but. Football-wise, I guess to say, the, one of the most surprising about Sunday was not only that the Yankees won the way they did to get in, but both our football teams won. Yours was more shocking, down 21-10 in the fourth quarter. Joe Judge is punting from fourth and eight from the 39. From the 39. You say, okay, this game's over, and then they come back 11 to tie, win in overtime. How shocking was that? I, I couldn't believe it. Now, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I was stupid enough to be watching the Yankees, hoping that they'd beat the Rays on that Sunday and clinch the playoff spot and hopefully have the game at home. Uh, so I, I didn't watch much of the giant game, but I was shocked to, to see that they uh, managed to come back and win the game. I'm, I'm still very, very down on the giants. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad that they won and, I, and I'll admit that some things have looked a little positive so far this year, despite the record, uh, Daniel Jones has played pretty well. Andrew Thomas has played pretty well, shockingly. But uh, I'm still the, the Giants is another case similar to the Yankees of just arrogance yeah. that they they walk they act like they walk on water too and they haven't won a thing in ten years either they're they're actually very similar to one another. 
uh, hopefully, it, so every time the Giants win, I, I get scared that that means Dave Gettleman's sticking around. Yeah, well, right now, Gettleman puts the back burner for a minute. The one thing essentially is Daniel Jones. I mean, he had probably one of his best games at pro. He threw 402 yards in that game in New Orleans. He had the big touchdowns to John Ross, Saquon Barkley, and I have to say, for the four games this year, Daniel Jones has probably has been a net positive for them most of the way. He's cut the turnovers way down. He's been making plays. What do you think about what you've seen so far out of him? He's playing really well. Uh, I'll give him credit. He really is. He's playing well. Uh, and they do have some pieces around him. Uh, if you, uh, it, the, the parts of the game I did see Sunday, when they have that roster out there, when they've got Galladay just making physical plays as a receiver, Tony underneath is a definitely a threat. He, he showed that he can play. Ross is a deep threat. Saquon uh, catching the ball out of the backfield. They, there's a semblance of an offense there if they can actually call the plays right and if they can protect uh, Jones, which to his credit, Andrew Thomas has looked like a stud so far. He's been great. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with that front. And Daniel Jones is – He's playing well. Uh, we'll. We'll see if he can continue it, but but he's definitely played. This is the best football he's played in his career for sure. Yeah, it definitely has. And now all of a sudden, like it's amazing what a difference one win can make for you for the Giants because we go talking all in three. All the season's over. We we have nowhere to go. Is Joe Judge getting run out of town? Wednesday, Galvin getting fired. All of a sudden, now you have a win. You're going to Dallas this week, chance to get back at the Cowboys, get a big win in division. What do you think they have to do to win this football game? I don't think they have a chance in hell to win the football game. But if they were to win it, what they need to do is the following. They need to contain the Cowboy offense. They're not going to shut down the Cowboy offense, but hold them to field goals. Keep them out of the end zone as much as you can. I know they're going to move the ball, but hold them to field goals. That's that's the most important thing. Uh I think they need to be aggressive on offense. That, that's that's one of the big knocks that I have on the Giants, and it starts with the head coach and goes all the way down. They are not aggressive enough. You are not going to win in the modern NFL if you play not to lose. You have to play to win. And by, what I mean by that is go for it on, in, on fourth down, fourth and short in enemy territory. Go for it. No, There's no need to see a kicker out there. That kind of stuff. The Giants never do it. Uh, th- this happened uh, two weeks ago. I was I was laughing that game against the uh, the Falcons that they lost. The Giants took the ball back with four minutes to go in the in the the lead, and they attempted to run out the clock basically with with conservative play calling, get into field goal range or not the lead, sorry, tie game, get into field goal range, kick the field goal. That that doesn't work. You got to play to win. And if the Giants can go out in Dallas and actually play to win, play aggressively, go after that Cowboy defense, which stinks, by the way, they might be able to put up some points. Uh, I think I think those are the big keys. And Joe Judge needs to not do anything stupid because he his. Uh, I know a lot of Giants fans love him. I don't, as you know. Uh, I knocked him from the first day they hired him on this podcast when he said something like, "We don't know who the starting running back is yet. We haven't had training camp for some ridiculous." cliche line but uh he's let's let's call it like it is mike he has been bad these first four weeks between challenging a scoring play use burning all his timeouts punting the ball in enemy territory on fourth and short he's been bad yeah he has so we'll see what happens this week i think it's a big 
pivot point for the Giants season here because they don't get this, things get ugly again. But if they do, you might have a season. Yeah, look, uh, I, I just I want to. I know I'm negative on the Giants, but I want to caution the Giant fans: do not get your hopes up. They're probably going to go get crushed in Dallas. Just this is the same thing that's happened every year, Mike. Because the Giants play in a crummy division, they you know they're two and four, two and five, and people say, "Well, they still have a chance." They don't have a chance. Yeah, you want to go out there and play well. That, that's what's important. Yeah, you want to change. Progressing, keep Thomas progressing. Show me something. You want a chance this season? Go beat Dallas. That's why. That's why I say the Giants. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and, and play well. Play well too, please. But I want to see the quarterback play well. I want to see the left tackle play well. I want to see some of these cornerstones really of the franchise play well. All right, and let's get to the picks. The reason why you're here. The great John Stenko was here last week doing picks the first time. He went one and two on the week. He had the Lions getting two and a half in the shock. Chicago was a popular pick on the board, but the Bears outclassed him. He had the Eagles getting seven and a half against the Chiefs at home. That was close to a big hands. He pulls away. He did win with the Packers laying six and a half against the Steelers at home. So one and two on the week for Stanko. Yeah, it was uh, picks in, in general have been tough this year. Yeah. I found yeah, as I've had the same issue. I went one and two last week as well. I picked against your team. I took the Saints laying the eight and a half. That one blew up in my face when they blew the lead late. I had the Bucks laying the seven on Sunday night against the Patriots and the weather and all the, pay- the Buck injuries kept that way closer than I should have been. I did win with the Ravens getting a point and a half in Denver. They won that outright. So I went one and two as well. So another rough week. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of people and I, I was one of them. A lot of people in uh, survivor pools got knocked out by our two teams last weekend. Oh, yeah. I'll get to the survivor pool later on. But on the year... The challengers are three and nine. I'm only five and seven. So it's been a slow start for both sides, to say the least. Yeah, well, uh, I'll see what I can do. But uh, th- this is when I was looking at the games, this is a very hard week to pick. Yeah, I mean, I was staring at these for about 45 minutes and I found one I liked right away. And that was just throwing darts at the other two, trying to figure out what to do with these picks. So that was ridiculous this week. Yeah, same. Uh, so caution to the listeners and the viewers. Uh, I don't feel confident in the picks I'm about to give at all, but but here we go. All right, let's and indeed here we go. So we're gonna get started here with the NFL picks for Week Five. Phil, you are the guest. Where are you going for pick number one? Uh, I'll just go in order of the one how I sent them to you. So pick number one uh, is, and like I said, this was a really hard week to pick. Uh, I, I I struggled with it, so uh, these are the best ones that I could come up with. Uh, Pick number one, Broncos are playing the Steelers. They're getting a point and a half, which I think is crazy because I, I don't know if you've watched the Steelers at all this year, but if you have, Ben Roethlisberger is cooked. He's done. He should have retired. They should not have begged him to come back. He was right. He knows his body better than anybody. Uh, I, I just don't think the Steelers are any good. I don't think Denver's any good either, but they're, they're, they've proven that they know how to beat bad teams like they did to our teams. So uh, I consider the Steelers to be a bad team right now. I think they can go in there and win the game outright and certainly cover the point in half. All right. I think also with that game, I think the thing that's tough with that one is obviously Teddy Bridgewater's injury because he has a concussion. We don't know if he's going to play that game. And Drew Locke is playing that game. I understand why they're underdogs on the road there, but it's a good value play if Teddy plays. Because Teddy plays, you got him as an underdog. You're going to win outright pretty much. I think you have a good shot at that one. Yeah, and, and, and even if Teddy doesn't play, I still feel okay about the game because... 
just because of the, the style of football that the Broncos play. It's not super quarterback dependent, and, and I think that their defense is just going to manhandle Roethlisberger and steal their offense. All right, where are you going with pick number two? Pick number two, I'm going with another road team, but this time I'm going the road favorite. The Packers are three-point favorites on the road against the Bengals. Uh, I know the Bengals have looked pretty good this year. Burrow's an, an impressive young quarterback. They, they have some pieces on that team, but Green Bay, I feel like, has been a little underrated so far early in the year. All they've been doing is winning. They've been winning all their big games. I like Green Bay to go in there, and uh, I, I, I think they win this game by a touchdown. Yeah, I see the logic in that pick. I do. The thing I worry about is, is this, is this a sucker bet where they have a game against the Bears next week? Do they look ahead, take the Bengals too lightly, and give them struggle mightily in this game? That's the one thing I worry about here. Yeah, yeah, look, it, it, that, I see that. I, that that's possible. And, and I don't mean to poo-poo the Bengals. I think the Bengals are a pretty good team. Uh, I think they, they're, they're certainly on the rise here, but... But I just think the Packers have been a little underrated so far in the, in the, by the bookmakers. They've, they've played well, and, uh, and I can see them going in there and, and winning. And say what you want about the, about the Packers and their, their coaching staff. That guy wins in the regular season. That, yes. That, that's, he's been a winner since he came in. Yeah, he does. And where are you going with your last pick? We pick number three. Pick number three. Uh, I'm, I'm picking this game more so because it's I just wanted to. Because it's kind of the game of the uh, game of the week, in, in a in a sense. But uh, I'm going with the Buffalo Bills, the plus three at Kansas City. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to pick the game just because I want to watch it and have a little bit of a rooting interest. So that's one reason why I picked it. But uh, I, I also I'm not. The Chiefs look a little down so far this year. Now maybe this is what they need big game against a tough, a tough opponent to get them going, but they, they don't look as sharp as they have in the past. Their defense stinks. So uh, I think Buffalo can go in there. I don't know if they're going to win the game outright, but I think they can keep it close. Yeah, this game is a lot of fun. I think the Lions perfect for that game. I think this is a big state for Buffalo here, too. They started off hot after that week one debacle with the Steelers, but they go in here and win this game. They, they, they're the class of the AFC. They probably have home field. I think it's a massive game. I like the odds there. So Kansas City is a little vulnerable. Yeah, I think the I think the Bills are getting them at the right time. Kansas City seems like one of those teams who have been there before. End of the year, they're probably going to be unbeatable. But right now, they, they may be beatable, and certainly enough that I can take the three. And, and you know, if I if I lose by a field goal, I still get the push. All right, those are your picks are on the board. I'm up now. Pick number one, and this tells you how crazy this weekend lines. But this is my most confident pick. I'm taking Detroit Lions getting eight and a half points in Minnesota against the Vikings. This is mostly a shot at the Vikings here because I don't think they're that good. They're one and three. Dalvin Cook is dealing with an ankle injury. He may not finish this game. He even plays in it. And eight and a half points is so, so big. Detroit's been competitive for the most part in their games. And I think last week was an overreaction to the Bears' struggles that that line was so tight. Now I think it's gone the other way completely where I think it's too big. I think this game is a touchdown game either way. And I'm getting the points at Detroit. I'll take the Lions here. Pick number one. Yeah, eight and a half is a big line. I agree with you. Uh, I looked at that game. I just, I can't bet on the Lions. It's, uh, just won't do it. Um, and just like the Mets are going to be in that new category, don't do it. But uh, but eight and a half is a big number. Right, that's pick number one. Pick number two. I'm taking the Titans, laying four and a half on the road in Jacksonville. I know what they look like against my team last week, but 
A.J. Brown's back at practice today. He might be able to play this weekend, which would be huge for them. Julio Jones might be on the mend as well. And the Jaguars are an utter train wreck. Urban Meyer's situation is such a disaster for them, such a distraction. I think the extra time here is not going to matter. They have to get ready for this game. There's so many things keeping them focused off the football field here. Tennessee needs this game in a big way. I think they're going to blow the Jaguars out. Give me the Titans laying the four and a half on the road, pick two. Yeah, I can see it. The, the only reason I stayed away from the Titans is because of what I saw against your team. They cannot, they, they, don't, they don't touch the quarterback. Yeah. They, they get no pressure on the quarterback. And, and um, Trevor Lawrence has shown some flashes that, that he can play. And I'm afraid that if you let him sit back there, he can keep the game close enough that, that they're going to cover. But, but I understand the logic there. Uh, the Jaguars do, they do stink. And Urban Meyer, I don't even know if he's going to finish the season, honestly. Yeah, that's pick number two. Pick number three, again, I was struggling a lot here. So I said, you know what? Have some fun. I'll take my Jets laying, getting three points in London against the Falcons. Again, Atlanta's not very good. Atlanta cannot defend the pass. I know this is a chance this blows up my face. Zach Wilson goes out a bad game after a strong showing against the Titans in the second half here. But I did take the bet here that this clicked. They're going to come out here focused. They're going to play well. They played well in basically two and a half of their three of their four games so far. The Denver game was a wash. The first half in Carolina was, was a wash. I think here they're going to be in this game. I think they have a great chance to go on the road and steal it. I don't think there's any reason they can. It's a neutral site. They're both going to London. It's not going down to Mercedes-Benz Stadium here. So this again, lack of options. Why not? Jets plus three. Wrap the week up. Yeah, you may as well take your team, have a little fun. Uh, I, I, look, uh, that's a team. That's You're right. That, two really bad teams. Uh, th- those London games in the past have tended to be kind of low scoring, I think. Uh, uh, if I remember right, they, they usually tend to be close. I think both teams are a little blown off by the travel and time zones. So, could I see that game being a close one and the Jets covering it? Yeah, sure. All right. So, to reset the picks of the week, Phil has started off the week here. He took the Broncos getting a point and a half in Pittsburgh against the Steelers, with the Packers laying three in Cincinnati against the Bengals. Took Buffalo plus three in Kansas City on Sunday night. I have taken Detroit Lions getting eight and a half points against the Minnesota Vikings week in Minnesota. I have taken the Tennessee Titans laying four and a half in Jackson against Urban Meyer Jaguars and the Jets plus three in London against the Atlanta Falcons. And those are your picks for week number five here on the podcast. Next week on the picks here, good friend of ours, another Yankee fan, Joe Chaffee back on the podcast doing picks next week. Uh, please uh, ask Joe his opinions on uh, Mr. Boone. Hopefully he's fired by that point. But uh, but if not, Joe may rant as well. Uh, it's 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 just uh, I was talking to him earlier today. Actually, it, it's a disgrace, Mike. It, I don't I don't I know we're we're doing football, but it's just really a disgrace that the the arrogance that that team has, that group of players have. They they've done nothing. They've won nothing. Yeah. And I hope they remember that in this offseason. Yeah, and keep people on the podcast forgotten. Joe's a big Titans guy, so we'll talk about that Titans Jaguars game that I picked. So we'll see if I'm going to be like congratulating him or yelling at him for basically getting me a loss. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he is a Titans guy. Yeah, and all, one more piece of business here. I do the knockout pick every week on the podcast. Last week, very very easy. I had Buffalo forty nothing over the Texans, so that was a probably the least sweat I've had with a knockout pick this year. Yeah, I got cute in my knockout pool. I thought I could save Buffalo for later. I picked the Titans, and uh, your team made me pay. Yeah, so right now, my sequence here, I've gone 49ers, Browns, Panthers, Bills. Those are my first four picks of the week, of the year. This week, 
I'm going to try and avoid the drown considering how ridiculously close these lines are. The pick is Tampa Bay over the Dolphins at home. Tampa Bay at home. Miami has Jacoby Brissett again. No Will Fuller. This is a game the Bucs are going to win. I think the Dolphins can cover the spread. It is 10 points, but I think the Buccaneers, there's no way in hell they're losing that game. I think that's right. Uh, I think that's the, if you don't want to get cute, that's the easiest one. Uh, the only other one that I could even consider is the Patriots. And that, that's just a bet against the Texans pick. Uh, and But I'm not very impressed with what I've seen from the Patriots this so I, I agree with, with your with your pick there. I think that's a safe pick. Because this week is ridiculous in Survivor. You're trying to get in the knockout pools, you're trying to get cute because there's not much out there. So the Patriots are there. Do you consider the Raiders at home against the Bears and the Bears have trouble scoring, maybe? But other than that, I don't know what else you're looking at. Yeah, no, there's nothing else you, you could really look at here. And uh and look, I I've I've preached it in knockout pools before and then I I didn't follow through. When you get cute, you lose. You're better off just don't try and save teams. Just go with the best team each week and get as far as you can, and then you never know. Yeah, the cures I went was week three with Carolina on the road in the short week. But that was Days Mills' first career start. I'm like, there's no way in hell they're going to lose that game. I got that correct, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you're alive. Yeah, I am alive. We'll see how long this goes, but already better than last year. Phil, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right, uh, Mike, before I go, I want to just rep the – Hitman softball team uh, that you and I are both both members of. Uh, I wore the shirt. Uh, just wanted to, in case any of our teammates are listening, uh, go Hitman. Or watching the YouTube version, you will see the actual visual of Phil rocking the Hitman shirt. Yeah, go Hitman. All right. Uh, back to back. All right, Phil. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The Two Minute Drill. All right, two-minute drill time here. Talk about the Mets managerial search. And I know it's going to be on the back burner for a bit because obviously they have to figure out who's running the baseball operations department first. Talk about some interviews already. John Heyman has said they have a very lofty wish list. Top three of Theo Epstein, Billy Bean, and David Stearns. I think it's up to Billy Bean any time. Obviously, his team got knocked out of the playoffs, so they are not there. They can request permission from the A's anytime. David Stern is the interesting one because obviously he has met ties, built a win in Milwaukee, but the Brewers are in the playoffs. So as long as Milwaukee is alive, they're not going to get Stearns yet. I feel like they're going to want to talk to Stearns before they make this decision. So it'll be a couple of weeks before we see a movement on that front. I think they'll do some interviews, but we'll see what happens here. The manager, though, is a different conversation. I think I want to go back to something Anthony McCarron said on the podcast earlier this week and go back in the archives listen to that one. We talked literally hours before the Mets let go of Luis Rojas. And he made a good point. You don't want to let Luis Rojas go just to hire somebody else as Luis Rojas. What that means basically is a lot of managers in today's game are now these younger guys, not a lot of experience, data savvy, willing to work with the front office, connect with the clubhouse, stuff like that. Rojas was the Mets version of it. I get why you let him go because you need to let this new president of baseball operations have the ability to set the organization from the top down. That includes the manager. But what are we doing here if we, again, go back to, let's hire a Luis Rojas type to be our guy. Why don't we hire the Oakland version of Luis Rojas if they can't get Bob Melvin to come over with them? Well, if we hire the Milwaukee version of Luis Rojas, that to me is a waste of time. I think we've seen enough of this. We have gotten... 
plenty of these kind of guys. And this market does not fare kindly to guys who are learning on the job. I don't think they will do as a lot of these new front offices about collaboration and we're working together in the process. I love to see a veteran manager manage this team. And my personal pick, who I wanted them to look at last time after the Beltron thing fell apart, was, was Buck Showalter. I know Buck is not for everybody. Buck has not been in the game for a few years, but Buck has a tremendous track record. Buck gets the most out of his players. Those teams he manages win. Buck can handle the pitching staff, which was one of the big issues with Rojas this season. Wherever Buck goes, his teams win. Just ask the early 90s Yankees start turning things around. He was there. Ask the Diamondbacks, the expansion Diamondbacks, who he turned into a contender before he got let go, and then they won the World Series. Ask the Texas Rangers, who became a powerhouse in the late 2010, in the late 2000s. Ask the Orioles, who had the best record in the American League for the majority of Buck's tenure. It's not Buck's fault that things don't go well at the ending, but they need an adult in this room. It's been missing here for a few years. I highly doubt they'll go this way because they feel they're going to be all out of collaborative again. But I love Buck. I love Dusty Baker if, he, if Houston doesn't re-up him, which it's, I don't know why they haven't done it yet, but if he's available, bring him in. One division title of five different teams, that's definitely worth something. If Billy Bean comes, maybe you can get the A's to let you take Bob Melvin on to save some cash, send them something back. Another adult in the room, another guy who wins. Something would be great. It's also worth mentioning, and something I also mentioned in the conversation with Anthony McCarron this week. Steve Cohen is still a factor in this. Remember last year, Steve Cohen's introductory press conference. He was asked about hiring people. And he made a point of saying, I don't like when people have to learn on my dime. He went through a year of Luis Rojas learning under his, under his dime. And the front office guys learning on his dime. You wonder if Steve Collins is going to get in here and put his finger on the scale a little bit and say, I want an experienced manager here. Somebody who knows what they're doing doesn't have to learn on the job and go through these growing pains. That guy like Carlos Beltran will, or bench coach X will, or broadcaster slash former player will. You wonder if that's going to happen. But this manager is going to take a while. You look at it. It's going to be probably late October before we have a president of baseball operations hired. And right now, they're one of the few jobs open, so they will have their pick of the candidates. I think you might get one or two more jobs opening up. Depends on what happens to the Yankees. San Diego is an open question as well, but I think they'll have options for managers that they want to get. I just hope they consider more seriously an experienced manager as opposed to run-of-the-mill bench coach X who is the hot guy and stuff like that. I want to see you get a veteran guy in here. This market demands it. All right, that will do it for our second show of the week. I want to thank my guest, Nick Davis, for coming on to talking all about the 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, his process making it. Definitely a fun conversation. I highly recommend checking that out on the YouTube version as well. Got a lot of fancy stuff on there for you there. I also want to thank our legal analyst, Phil Forever, doing the week five NFL picks. Market stuff like this podcast, including my look at the instant reaction in the AI wildcard game. I went live with my thoughts on the blog right after the game and did check out the blog over just on the suffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google play, tune in, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for just and the suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all episodes there. Feel free your feedback and star rings will help. It help make the podcast even better going forward. So check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. 
individual video chats with both Nick Davis and our legal guy, Phil Ferrari. We'll be on there. Check those out as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's it for this week on the podcast. Coming up next week on the podcast, we have a special two-episode week once again. We're going to do pop culture first. Now we're going to start off with the Sky Guy. Geek Constantor, Nick Friedman are around. We're going to do Season 2 Rebels, Star Wars, Visions, and more. Until then, have a good week, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.